Hello and welcome. My name is Roni Firon, and this is The Bigger Picture, where we sit down with experts to hear about their journeys, their insights, and the big ideas that drive them. Stay tuned for today's episode. In today's episode, I spoke with Professor Ruven Dar, a clinical psychologist and researcher who studies OCD. Ruvi and his colleagues have developed a model that approaches OCD in a different way from the mainstream consensus. They've come up with a framework for OCD called Seeking Proxies for Internal States. The idea behind this is that individuals suffering from OCD have a harder time accessing their own internal states. And in order to deal with this, they seek proxies or things that are external to them in order to gauge what exactly their internal states are. This is quite a different way of looking at OCD, and it shines a light on the difficulties that these individuals often experience when trying to understand what exactly they themselves are feeling. So their ritualized and compulsive behavior become these kinds of external crutches that help them gain more certainty around their uncertain evaluations of their own internal worlds. We talked about the different symptoms of OCD and how they can manifest on a spectrum. One of the important notes that came from this was that, like other psychological disorders, a diagnosis of OCD is only made when the symptoms are truly interfering with the individual's life, functioning, and well-being. We also spoke about OCPD, or obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, and how it differs from classic OCD. Ruvi and his colleagues have done something that I particularly admire. They've looked at a certain accepted consensus and said, we're not quite sure it's accurate. When ideas are widely accepted in any field in science, it's hard to reopen that area of inquiry for further examination and to perhaps reevaluate certain things that were held to be true. Any endeavor that takes a second look at things with fresh eyes is a laudable step towards the pursuit of truth and is, in my opinion, embodying the true spirit of science. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Professor Rovidal. So today on The Bigger Picture, we have with us Professor Ruven Dahl. Welcome, Ruvi, and thanks for joining us today. So I'd like to start by asking you, what do you think a lot of people misunderstand about OCD? Hmm, good question. Um, first of all, I think people don't have a clear understanding of what compulsions and obsessions are. And, and you often hear people say, use the word obsessions to describe compulsions and vice versa. Um, and, you know, I think for many people, it's just a very strange disorder. And, and I think some people would think, oh, they're crazy. You know, they, they have these strange obsessions or beliefs or the word beliefs is complicated. But, yeah, beliefs or they hold on to some very strange beliefs like, you know, um, if I think a certain thought, then I can cause things to happen or prevent things from happening. So, um You know, I'm not sure how much people know about OCD. It's a good question. So you mentioned obsessions and compulsions. Mm -hmm. Can you make sense of that for us? Sure. So obsessions are sort of the mental part. So obsessions are um, thoughts or images that people experience um, and they feel that they just have them. So they don't feel that they're active in producing them, but just appear and they produce anxiety or distress or sense of disgust or guilt, negative experiences. Uh, and compulsions are the acts that people do. Usually it's a behavioral, uh, for example, like you know, washing your hands or checking things uh, again and again. That The motivation for that usually is to reduce the distress that is caused by the obsessions. Um, so... But compulsions can also be mental. So people may have compulsions like counting or saying that's not going to happen three times uh, or um, trying to reconstruct events in their day. So, for example, if I was afraid that I may have touched something contaminated, I may reconstruct where I was exactly and could it be that my hands really touched something that seemed suspicious to me. So uh, compulsions could be mental, but um, the big difference is obsessions are something that I experience as just happening to me, so I don't initiate them. 
uh, whereas whereas compulsion is something that I initiate and and I'm motivated to do them in order to reduce the distress that is caused by the obsessions. Interesting. There's something in that where it feels like it's coming from outside or it's not associated to the self, the right, obsessions. Right, I think it's true. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I think also some people may feel that the compulsions are also not exactly... They don't have a sense of agency about the compulsions as well because they feel compelled to do them. So they might say the OCD makes me do all these strange things. Right. It's an externalizing of yes. a certain aspect of yourself. And exactly. it's not, it doesn't feel like this belongs to me. It's exactly. not your essence. Right. It's something, right. It's something that's external. Right. Okay. Right. Now, you and your colleagues developed this new paradigm around OCD mm-hmm. called seeking proxies for internal states. Can you break that down for us? Sure. So uh, the main idea in our model of OCD is that um, people with OCD have difficulty accessing, knowing their internal states. Um, so internal states in this definition is, is ev- you know everything like from emotions. I don't know what I'm feeling. I don't know if I understood something that I read. Um, and But even I don't even know if I'm hungry. And I don't even know what my muscle tension is. I'm relaxed or not relaxed. Um, and because they don't ha- have access to these things, they begin to rely on proxies. Uh, and proxies are substitutes for the internal states that I can feel more certain about because they maybe they're more objective. So, for example, if I don't know how much I love my girlfriend, I can count the number of text messages that I sent her or I can see how much money I spent on gifts for her, right? So I have the, all these objective, what we call proxies, that substitute for my difficulty in accessing my sense of love for my girlfriend, okay? It's an example. If I don't have a good sense of whether my hands are clean or not, then I develop a ritual uh, that has very clear components, and, you know, I go by order, and I wash every finger first, and then I wash the, you know, the gap between the fingers and so on. Uh, and then I finish my ritual. That, for me, substitutes for the difficult-to-access sense of cleanliness that I want to achieve. Interesting. And how how does this approach uh, differ from the classic definition of OCD? Uh, It's very different. The definition of OCD is just people who have obsessions and compulsions, right? A period. A period. That's the definition of OCD. Um, And um, some people have talked about difficulty in accessing specific internal states, uh, but like maybe a guilt... um, uh, and, and they think of OCD as something that is restricted to particular kinds of concerns, like contamination, safety, and so on. We think that the deficit is general; it's sort of content-free. I mean, it's true that you know, phenomenologically, people with OCD are concerned usually with specific kinds of themes. But we we showed in our research that the deficit in accessing internal states this is not limited to these uh, typical concerns, uh, and and that's a very unique. Thing in our model. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, there's there's something that comes up for me for with that, mm-hmm. where it seems like, in a sense, the issue is uh, striving for certainty, where certainty mm-hmm. can't actually be achieved, and then using the proxies to to achieve some sort of certainty. And it relates to me to certainty specifically because we often think of OCD as being a disorder of excess of control, right? Of, of order, an excess of control and of order. You mean a need for control? The control right, yeah. mm-hmm. right. So in a sense, the would it necessarily only be internal states or would it just be the striving for certainty in a very uncertain world? Okay, so uh, there are many models of OCD that stress the need uh, for certainty and talk about OCD as having a problem with uh, intolerance of ambiguity. So mm-hmm. they need a certain a certain certainty and they can't tolerate it when things are not clear. But we don't think that's the whole explanation. Clearly there's doubt and there's need for certainty. But what we showed in our studies uh, is that they actually have deficient performance, uh, not just that they have excessive doubt about their performance, which they do usually. I'm just conducting meta-analyses on, on, on these issues of confidence in performance. But they actually perform less well compared to people with other anxiety disorders. So 
I don't think the story is limited to uh, doubt or uncertainty or need for certainty. Okay, so you're saying that this is really a matter of, when you say performance, they're really unable to access their internal states compared to other people who can right who can access and therefore the over-reliance on proxies right right and and I, I agree with you that they do want to be sure about their internal states right and and they we only see this in actual patients or in actual phenomenology when they have a concern about a certain internal states if they don't care then they don't ask the question but if it's important to me to decide if um, this woman is right for me and do I love her enough or am I religious enough? Uh, then I begin to want to access my internal states, and then I want an answer, right? Um, but you know, just a need for certainty enough doesn't explain uh, these kinds of behaviors, I think. Okay, and I have another question, and I know this is a difficult question to answer um, method- methodologically, right? Mm-hmm. But what do you think causes this? Do you think it's an um, uh, inbuilt trait? Is it genetic? Is there some uh, neurologic correlation that you guys have found that? Uh, that's the $100 question. So we don't really know <laughs> okay. the answer to that. Um, we haven't looked at, we're not, you know, we don't do brain research, so we haven't looked at the brain correlations. There are some studies that looked at that. I don't think the findings are very strong, either genetic or uh, or brain studies. Um, now, where does it come from? Is it uh, something that people you know, uh, grow up with and then they become more vulnerable to developing OCD or is it already the result of having some OCD? Uh, so we don't really know the answer to that. Uh, it's very, very difficult to answer mythologically said because you need to take many, many people, uh, assess if they have difficulty accessing their internal states, follow them up, you know, from, you know, being kids to being adults until and, and then see how many people develop OCD. And that's a very, very difficult uh, Right. Kinds of study to do. Yeah. Because because on the one hand, you know, you could have a childhood where you w- weren't given the chance or um, you didn't have models that showed you how to access your own internal state. So, right. so you didn't get that practice mm-hmm. or perhaps you were genetically predisposed to not be able to right. access your internal states. Right. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, do you see OCD as being on a spectrum from perfectionism on one side to to full-blown diagnosis on the other? Yeah, I think there is um I think it is a dimension. I don't think perfectionism necessarily is what you see on on the less pathological side. But yeah, if you look at, at scales that measure um the severity of symptoms of OCD, which we've done, um, then you find uh, the whole range, uh, in, even in students in psychology, right? And uh, and many of the studies we've done is we've taken people who are either low or high in terms of their scores on these uh, on these OCD measures, and we showed that lows and highs are different in a very similar way in which people with OCD are different from not people without OCD or people with anxiety disorders that are not OCD. So yeah, I think there is a range. But at the same time, when you have OCD, you have OCD. I mean, I think when you, when a person comes to the clinic, it's easy to diagnose. It's not just a person who has many kinds of um, concerns about safety or about morality or about order. It's a person with OCD, right? And so I think, I, I don't know exactly. So I, I'm saying two things that may sound like they contradict each other. On the one hand, there is a dimension very clearly. But I don't think, for example, that all the people who score highly on OCD questionnaires have OCD. Okay. Okay. So it's it's both. I think it's a dimension, but it's also a disorder. So do you think that, you know, when we kind of in our culture use the term OCD almost, um, we, we almost use it too. Yeah, yes, we yeah, almost yeah. use mm-hmm. it a little too easily to just describe someone who's a little bit of a control freak or right. a little perfectionistic. You think that's incorrect to do? Yeah, it's incorrect. And in, in the same way that when you talk, when you joke about somebody that is autistic, you know, that, you know, thinks guy just doesn't read social cues. Right. Uh, that's not really the same as being really on the spectrum of autism necessarily or, have, or having a autistic disorder. So, um, and I think the other thing I would mention is that there is a difference between 
uh, OCD and OCPD, which is the obsessive compulsive personality disorder. So I think when Can you're you talking about... Can you tell us about that? So, all right. So these are people who have um, concerned with um, morality, with order, with perfectionism. Um, they have great difficulty letting others do, uh, relying on others to do their job correctly. Uh, they are very much um, busy with work at the expense of free time and, and having and, and spending time having fun. Uh, they're not able to have fun. So there are people who are, um, they're not aware of having this problem, right? They're supposed to OCD. So people don't come for treatment and saying, I have an obsessive compulsive personality. It's something that we observe in these people, that they're very uh, rigid, very compulsive in the sense that they must do things in a certain way, but they don't have obsessions, right? And they don't have rituals in the same sense that people with OCD have them. Okay, but it, it is kind of from the same family as you're describing it. So that's, a you know, it used to be a theoretical issue. So early theories of OCD uh, thought that it was a, like um, yeah, a continuum, that you start from having this kind of personality, um, and then you, what Freud, by the way, called analic, right? The anal personality. Right. And then um, you can develop from that base, you can develop the actual disorder. Uh, today, it's considered an empirical question. So you can measure OCD, you can measure OCPD, and you can measure the extent to which they're related. Um, certainly in the student population, we, we find a very strong correlation between the two. So OCPD is considered a disorder? It's considered a personality disorder? It is a personality disorder, right? Obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Because, you know, from the description, it sounds like um, there are a lot of high-functioning people with sure. OCPD. Sure. And... Okay, so there are also yes. a lot of functioning, high functioning people with OCD. Okay, yeah. okay, because there is something in that uh, compulsion that if it's channeled into the right places, right, or into productive places, then you can. Right, but 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 by definition, if we talk about a personality disorder, we mean something that's not functional. So it it goes beyond being functional. So the person, for example, can be so busy preparing something that they never actually get to do it uh, or they can so busy with the details they never see the big picture uh, they they you know they never get to finish assignment because they're so perfectionistic so it's it, when it's a disorder rather than just what we call spectrum or tendencies then it's by definition has to be dysfunctional right so this ties into another question that I wanted to ask you an idea that I wanted to run by you. Mm -hmm. So I think that most psychological disorders, as as they're defined today, they're really normal adaptive behaviors that have become extreme. So that most disorders are based on behaviors that have had an evolutionary basis, but that in these disorders, the behaviors manifest in excess and become pathologized. So what what would you say to that? Um, I think it certainly makes sense in, in some pathologies. So I think if you talk about, including OCD, and we can talk in a minute about, a minute about why that might be the case. I, I'm not sure it's true about schizophrenia. Right. Um, but yeah, uh, so for example, if you look at phobias, right? So phobias are fears of things that in our past, in our you know, in our ancient past, it made sense to be afraid of them, right? So people are more afraid of cockroaches and snakes than they are afraid of drug dealers and, <laughs> and, and car accidents, right? Because they didn't exist in the time in which the fear system developed. Uh, and, and certainly it's easy to see why fear is adaptive at a certain level, right? It protects you from, from danger. Um, people have talked about the evolutionary basis of OCD, um, for example, uh, some people think that in animals it's comparable to um, nesting and grooming behaviors, right? In this animals. ritualistic. Yes, yes, uh, and, and that you can find similarities between them. Um, and that maybe, for example, ordering is something that um, if you order things in a certain way and you know the order in which you put things, then if an invader comes in, you would notice that something has changed, right? So people did talk about uh, the evolutionary basis of, of, of some of these uh, of these behaviors. 
um, checking, cleaning. You can see why that they might have in, in a certain context, they might have evolutionary uh, advantages. And yes, and then you can see that when it goes um, bananas, basically, then it becomes non-functional. Right, because the operating system is there for a reason, but you know mm-hmm. the operating system might uh, go haywire, you know, exactly. in a sense. So I wanted to ask you on a personal level, mm-hmm. what fascinated you about OCD specifically? Uh, well, it's a good question. I, I, I probably arrived at, at working with OCD not by any, any intention. So I was a student uh, and, and a graduate student and there was a clinic at the psychiatry department that did behavioral therapy and I needed the money. So I went and joined them um, and I did exposure therapy with uh, with phobias and with OCD. Um, and I can tell you a moment in which I found this to be a very interesting disorder. I, I think it is. I think it's just fascinating that you see people who are, again, some of them can be very high-functioning people, and they have these crazy ideas and crazy behaviors, at least from the outside, to the outside observer. Um, and they're very different from each other. Uh, and I think there's a huge range of um, ideas that people develop um, about that, that are, you know, obsessional ideas or create this obsessional reality to which they respond with with rituals and uh, and with rules and norms and and all this stuff that people with OCD do, um, so I think I think it's fascinating in terms of it's um, I don't know inventiveness <laughs> in, in a way, uh, which contrasts with with fairly normal functioning in many areas of you know people very successful people may have OCD and you would never know because they're able to hide it uh, and. Uh, and it's sort of encapsulated in their lives. Can you give us some examples of these creative uh, obsessions that people might have? Uh, I have to be creative here because I don't want to point out to any real patients. Um, so maybe somebody can develop the idea that certain numbers are very dangerous in any um, and being in any way rem- reminded of these numbers or being close to these numbers uh, is, is dangerous for that person. So say the number is, I don't know, seven. Uh, and anytime I see something that reminds me of seven, it could be um, at the time, it could be the number of cars I've seen passing by me. It could be a number of license plate. It could be the channel of the radio to which I'm listening. I have to do things in order to correct this and, and to get out of the state of the seventh state, you can call it, okay? Um, I have, you know, people may doubt very, very uh, basic facts which um, which you would not normally doubt, right? So it could be internal states like we mentioned, but it can also be, am I alive? You know, I mean, you know, maybe I'm already dead, stuff like that. That um, sounds like a philosopher's question, yeah, really. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, um, it's very interesting because we once I once wrote a paper with students of mine about um, the relationship between philosophy and OCD. So we talked about doubt on the one hand and certainty on the other hand um, as two ends of a continuum where delusions are uh, represent certainty, too much certainty, because people with that have delusions can't doubt them. I mean, and you can't help them by saying, you know, that this doesn't make sense, or, or, or can you think of other possibilities? They are very, very certain about the reality that they uh, believe in, whereas people with OCD doubt everything, right? And um, we talked about philosophy, and, and particularly philosophy of science, uh, which tends to go to recommend being more certain than more doubtful. So there is a relationship. I mean, if you doubt everything in science, for example, if you begin to develop a theory and you begin to test it, and then you doubt uh, every step of the way and, and you stop to question yourself, you cannot make any progress. And that, by the way, is true for our general cognitive biases. For example, people tend to be overconfident, right? Uh, and over positive. And that is adaptive because that helps you to go forward and not stop every second and, and question yourself, which people with OCD tend to do. Interesting. So a bit of digression, but yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, when you when you said uh, doubt, 
it immediately jumped into my mind, Renee Descartes, you know, and and this constant doubting of everything and am I alive and what what can I actually know? Right. And right, uh right. fantasies of um demons that might be controlling my <laughs> my perceptions. Mm-hmm. So about the number seven that mm-hmm. we mentioned before, does something in a person's life trigger them to associate this negative meaning around the number? About the number seven. Uh, in the case I'm thinking about, he couldn't recall anything that um, brought this thing to life. I mean, some people can remember specific incidents that for them, um, they believe were the trigger. But many people don't. Um, and, and also, when you look at um, the course of how the, this disorder develops, sometimes it's sudden and sometimes it's not. So, for example, I did have a patient I can talk about because many, many years ago who um, whose disorder started uh, from um, they, in their basement. It was, this was uh, not, not in Israel, and they had a basement, and there was... Um, and the sewer came out of, of some an opening in the basement. They had to clean it up. And that was for her very much clearly the, the, the trigger of her OCD. So she began to develop OCD around contamination related and more and more remotely related to, uh, to this sewer coming out of, uh, of the basement. Um, but for many other people, they can't recall anything that uh, was, was the trigger, an obvious trigger to, to, to their... Interesting. Problem. Interesting. And what I mean, when you when you talk about something like that, I think that anybody would be traumatized by that kind of experience. So what in her response was uh, considered a disorder? So she began um, avoiding everything. First of all, you know, the basement became a, a problematic place for her. And unfortunately, the, the washing machine, the dryer in the basement was typical in America. And she um, began to develop more and more complex rituals um, around the washing, uh, clothes washing. And she, so she had to uh, wash the clothes several times and then she even would talk to the machine and, and sort of try to convince her, the machine, that to, to clean well, sort of almost praying. Then she would gradually get to the point where she wouldn't want to put the clothes from the machine into the closets because that would contaminate the closets. That's something very, very typical in OCD, that you have this chain of association that something contaminates something else, and then that thing becomes contaminated and contaminates something else. Um, and eventually she got to the point that she had well, she had many rituals related to contamination. For example, she would when she walked in the street, she would try to avoid... Uh, sidewalks in which they had this opening, sewer openings. Uh, she would tie her shoelaces v- to a very tight um, knot on top of the shoe so they don't touch uh, the ground. She would return home and wash everything, like her backpack and the books even that were in the backpack and the shoes and everything. She wouldn't let people come into the house because they could bring contamination in the house. She washed everything in the house, like door handles and phones and, and stuff like that. She ended up, um, in, you know, sort of the house was all contaminated in her mind uh, to the exclusion of, of some hall that she could walk in. Uh, and, and she found herself walking naked one day in that hall because all the clothes were contaminated. So it was, she became very, very severe, uh, severely ill with this. And, and she could clearly uh, point out to that event that you call traumatic, but but it wouldn't necessarily be traumatic for you, right? I mean, even if you you would hate, you know, you wouldn't like thinking about about that. I mean, you, you know, you had to do it, you had to deal with it. But I don't think necessarily in every person it would develop these kinds of um, associations and and spread and spread and spread to the point that it was spread in her case. Right, right. Yeah. No, that that yeah. does sound um, debilitating. Like yeah. you really can't live your life. She I've, couldn't. She had to be hospitalized. I mean, wow. that was a very yeah, severe case. I was I was just thinking about my own experience where uh, one summer here in Tel Aviv there were a ton of cockroaches, even mm-hmm. more than usual, mm-hmm. um, in my in my apartment. The, su- the summertime at night is like when they like to come out, and I was, you know, in my in my experience, it was a little bit traumatizing when <laughs> your whole house is under attack. So 
I, um, my response to that was I have a summer protocol where when the sun sets, the windows, if they don't have uh, nets on them, they're closed. And, and like there's a door to the, to the roof and I put a towel under it. Uh-huh. Might be a little excessive, right. you know, but I can live my life. So right. <laughs> that right. I understand is not considered uh, in, in the definition of OCD. Uh, first of all, it would be more like a phobia, right? Because okay. you don't do any rituals. It's more, right. I mean, the behaviors that you describe are very reasonably related to what you're trying to avoid. And that's not like that in OCD, right? There is a, one of the definitions or the part of the definition is that the behavior is excessive or is not directly related to the stuff that you're trying to avoid. In your case, you know, you're trying to avoid being in contact with these, uh, and many people have, you know, uh, phobias of cockroaches. So you are acting rationally, maybe excessively, but rationally. Okay. So I'll same thing that. with people who, right? right uh, <laughs> uh, and your obsessions, I mean, you, your thoughts didn't appear to you to be strange or uh, ideal, you know, uh, sort of ego dystonic, as they say. They didn't right. seem to you strange or didn't make sense. They made perfect sense to you. Right, yeah. right. And and in the evenings, there are no cockroaches. Yeah, so, so success. <laughs> so success, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, so I wanted I wanted to ask, you know, when, when you're working with individuals who have OCD, how, how do you help these individuals? Uh, to the extent that they do. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, there are, there are um, tried methods of, of help working with OCD. Uh, the main... You com- mentioned exposure therapy. And response prevention, right? Those are the okay. two components, right? Exposure is when you help people. If we think of that person that I described before, that she had all these avoidances, right? She wouldn't walk in certain places. She wouldn't go to the basement. Or when she did, she would, um, she would try to stay away from, uh, from that opening in the basement, uh, she would uh, not let people go into the house. So there is a big avoidance component, which is like in phobias. Uh, what brings people to therapy with phobias is when they avoid things, right? If they can't fly, they have flight phobia, then they come into the So you work on uh, one component of the treatment, and that's not my treatment. That is the most established treatment for OCD, is uh, the component of exposure. So you help people to not avoid the things that... Um, that they tend to avoid, like not touching things or not being in certain places which they feel are dangerous and so on. The certain component which is specific to OCD as opposed to phobias or other fears is that what, what's called, I'm not sure it's a great name for it, but uh, response prevention, which is you help the person to reduce the amounts of compulsions or rituals that they normally do in response to the obsessions. So if a person, I don't know, has a, 20-minute ritual of washing their hands, you try to reduce it gradually, use less soap, use less towels, less repetitions, and so on, or delay it or avoid it altogether. So that they, the idea is you now have this fear, try to stay with it and try not to do anything that would immediately reduce it, even though the temptation is very clearly there. I mean, who would want to suffer from feelings of, I don't know... Um, distress or, or dirtiness or anxiety. But you need, in order to break the cycle of this um, having fear and then doing the ritual, you need to try to um, stay with the fear, not respond to it as you typically do. So that's something that I think is a common component in all the treatments uh, of OCD that has a behavioral component. Another component is, is um, how you deal with the obsessions. So people feel that they can't tolerate the obsessions because they're so they they evoke so much distress or anxiety. And one way to help them is to help them to disengage from the content of the obsessions to not necessarily to argue with them, but more to just let them be there without acting on them. Without um they often people tend to um I guess, um, assign or tribute meaning to the obsession. So if, if I have these images that I'm throwing my child out of the window, that must mean that I'm a very bad mother and I might act on it. So I must, you know, not have these thoughts. Or if I have them, then I have to make sure that I'm not around the child because I might act on it. So 
one component of the treatment is to help people take a, some distance from their obsessions um, and just look at them as thoughts and nothing more than that, not something that means something about who they are, what their wishes or motivations are. Um, in our model of, of uh, what called the SPIS model that you mentioned, this taking proxies for internal states model, we think that um, the reason that people with OCD uh, attribute so much importance to their thoughts is because they're less connected to other internal states. So with the, with the example of, of mother or father who hold their baby and have this fear that they would throw him out of the window, uh, normally I think if you have this kind of image as a mother, you have other sources of information that would tell you that you're not likely to do it because you're connected to your love, to your baby, uh, you have more assuredness about having no motivation to throw them out, and so on. So I think that would balance a fleeting thought like that, and you wouldn't necessarily feel afraid. But if you, if all these sources of information are uh, attenuated, as we think they are in OCD, uh, then I think that becomes thoughts become a very central source of information for you, and that's why they're so frightening. Interesting. You know, in um, the mindfulness community, in the meditation community, there's this quote of don't believe everything you think, right? Exactly. And it's this learning that thoughts kind of appear on the stage of consciousness. And in a sense, for all of us, you know, it's a question of are are we thinking the thoughts or are the thoughts, you know, showing up? Mm-hmm. So, so it is taking a little bit of distance from the thoughts and not necessarily you know, attributing meaning or associating our identity with the thoughts themselves. Exactly Exactly right. So I think that's a very important component of helping people deal with the obsessions. Interesting. And also um, when you were mentioning the mother, you know, having obsessive thoughts about um, throwing her her child out the window, there, you know, I heard this one, um, Brene Brown, uh, I don't know if, you, if you're familiar no. with her work, but she has this uh, saying where, you know, when everything is good and, for instance, in the evening when your children just gone to bed and they're so peaceful and everything is good, that's when you think of the worst thing that could happen to them. Like, that's when you start dress rehearsing tragedy, mm-hmm, she calls mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And it's this um, almost... Uh, the in a situation where you love something so much or when you're so happy and or so grateful, you... You're also you, so vulnerable at the same time, sure. Exactly, exactly. And then and then these thoughts of what would happen if I lose uh, right. that thing. So so definitely I think there's there's something almost natural about it, but it's mm-hmm. it's that, um, you know, inability to, to, to put space between you and the thought. Exactly. And, and you know, if you, you do mindfulness, then you know about all these exercises that people do in order to take some distance from their thoughts. Uh, so, for example, you can train people to write these thoughts down, mock their thoughts, like, you know, say them in, in the voice of Donald Duck or something, uh, write them in, in different fonts. So, for example, if you speak Hebrew, you can write them in English letters and so on. Uh, or you can imagine sitting in a movie theater and your thoughts are being on the screen and you're just observing them and letting them go without doing anything with them. You don't respond to them. You don't have to do anything without them. So all these exercises are designed to help people to just observe their thoughts mindfully, right? And and not do anything with them, right. which can be helpful in OCD. There's mm-hmm. like a dissociation that happens when you externalize it in that way. Right, right. right? Mm-hmm. Even even um, through comedy, right? There's something right. like there's a wire in your brain that it's... Um, it's it, it, takes a different color almost you know mm-hmm. when you when you package it in this different way right 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 in, in there is an um a form of therapy now became very popular called acceptance and commitment therapy you know about that and, yes of course uh, and they have this saying oh thank you mind for that right another great <laughs> idea that you just produced for us wonderful but and and you sort of mock it and you take a distance from it and you don't believe it they call it diffusion. You take a, you don't fuse with your thoughts, but you diffuse with your thoughts or from your thoughts. Right. And I think, you know, comedy in general has this ability to to look at whether it's, you know, true facts or realities of life that might be negative, but to put a 
a funny spin on them, right? It is this way of of dealing with things that are difficult, right? Yeah. So in in this seeking proxies for internal states model, mm-hmm. you you mentioned that people have a hard time, you know, accessing internal states and emotions in a sense. Emotions are one of the internal states, right? Right, and, mm-hmm. and also physiological states right. and things like that. Have you found that people who have OCD also have a hard time feeling empathy for other people? Is it also on that level? That's an excellent question. I mean, I don't think there's a lot of research on it. Um, I would predict that they would have difficulties uh, having empathy, but I'm not sure how specific this is to OCD. I think that people need to stress in general that we see in the clinic, whether they have anxiety or depression, um, have hard time caring about other people. I mean, they're you know self-absorbed in a sense. Um, I don't mean it um, pejoratively. They're, they're self-absorbed in their own difficulties, and I think they would have hard time um, really empathizing or caring about other people. What's interesting about OCD is that many of the symptoms appear as if uh, these people with OCD really care about other people. For example, this this fear of causing harm mm-hmm. uh, to other people. Um, so it seems like they would um, they seem to be very caring people. But I think it's really more about fearing guilt. Fearing they, they're afraid of of having of feeling very guilty of of doing something immoral rather than really caring about hurting other people. So I think it's more fear of guilt. And, and there are se- several theories of OCD that focus very much on, on um, guilt as being a, an essential component of OCD. I don't think it's always the case. Um, but what, I think what there do is, these theories say? They say that uh, OCD often revolves around fear of guilt and, and, and specifically deontological guilt, which is the guilt of... Um, when you do something that um, breaks a, a societal taboo, uh, something that shouldn't be done. Um, but uh, I have we actually did a nice study that shows that uh, the caring is really probably more caring about not wanting to feel guilty rather than caring about other people. There's a nice paradigm that we didn't develop that shows that if um, people are made to feel guilty or to think about something they've done which was immoral, and then they're given an opportunity to wash their hands, then the hand-washing reduces the guilt. Wow. Which is a general phenomenon. It's called the Macbeth effect, and it's been replicated nicely, I think, at this point. And what we've done is we did the same uh, kinds of paradigm. We don't need to get into details, but we did this with people with OCD and without OCD. One of the measures that we did at the end was, uh, again, not our invention, is that um, we tell people after they either wash their hands. So first of all, they think about something that they did which they feel bad about, in terms of morally bad about. Uh, then there, um, we give them some reason to wash their hands or, or to not wash their hands. And then we um, tell them a story that there is this um, PhD student that needs help in running an, an experiment. And would they volunteer to help her? So what typically is found is that people who don't wash their hands are more keen to help because they still feel guilty and they still need another way to uh, relieve them of the guilt. So if they do something nice, that would help them. We found this very strongly with OCD. So if people, if people with OCD this, did this, and those who washed their hands, none of them wanted to help this person. So, you know, and, and those who didn't wash their hands were very likely to, to offer their help help. So that really suggests that it's not that they care about this other person. They don't want to feel guilty. If you relieve them of their guilt, which washing seems to be doing very effectively, then they're not interested very much in helping other people. At least that's the conclusion from this study. Yeah. No, of course. I th- I think there's something about uh, guilt in general. You know, these uh, certain themes that have been popping up that, you know, OCD does seem to... I don't know if if you found this, but it seems to correlate with trait conscientiousness, you know, from the big five personality theory. Because a lot right. of these themes of, of um, you know, attention to morality, attention to guilt, um, and the the need for order, right? And 
even more so um, your, you know, your description of OCPD. Yes, I think it's exactly right. So I think people with OCPD, uh, conscientiousness is, is one of the core criteria, right, of the core components of, of, PD, of um, OCPD. With OCD, it really depends on the type of OCD. So I don't think every person with OCD is, is worried about guilt. Some, I think some don't. But I think for those who do, then conscientiousness becomes something that almost by definition is, is a concern, right? You want to be okay uh, in terms of uh, societal norms, of doing the right thing, right? so on, yeah. And there's another thing that kind of jumped at me where, you know, we think of uh, religions, you know, and we think of religious activity in general. There's the ritualistic aspect of it. And there is very much a concern of morality and almost this uh, excessive guilt. You know, you, you see it in this idea of original sin, for instance, of, um, you know, thinking of ourselves as inherently guilty. Mm-hmm. You know, right Especially out. in Christianity and Catholicism, I think, less so in Judaism, I think. Uh, right. I remember that I heard a story from uh, a priest uh, who had OCD, and he told me how it all developed. And it started from um, his thoughts that he was committing all these sins, uh, for example, masturbating. Um, and he told me these things were called mortal sins or double mortal sins, which sounds very, very scary. So naturally, when you have these um, these thoughts and these um, fears, I mean, it's, it sounds like more people should have OCD, you know, <laughs> more Catholic Catholic people. Uh, there are some studies, by the way, that compare religions. Um, I'm not sure how conclusive they are, but even in Israel, uh, there were studies um, that looked at um, the extent of OCD in the in the Orthodox society, a community compared to non-Orthodox society. And were I th- there more? I think, I think there, there were some more, if I remember correctly. Um, what what is clear is that those people who did have OCD tended to have OCD around religious themes, like am I praying with enough uh, intent, right, or uh, am I conscientious enough about keeping the mitzvot and uh, and, and the Sabbath and so on and kosherness. So you can really get, I mean, it invites right OCD these very specific uh, rules that people have to to follow. Right. It's um it's a question of, you know, the chicken or the egg. There's something in it where perhaps this um, you know, built in tendency of a certain percentage of the population to lean towards O C D, perhaps that also invited um the evolution of religion itself and the, and the mm-hmm. rituals and, and things like that. So So I think what you're saying is that rituals have a function. Uh, right. And, and um and it's true. I mean there's a very nice paper that's been almost 15 years ago, was, was published about uh, why people have rituals. And, and they did combine religion, uh, sorry, uh, rituals in religion with uh, rituals in OCD and, and talked about the similar function that they serve. And I think, you know, it, it serves a function at least of putting some order in your life, uh, um, that you feel that things have a reason, that if you only do the right things, then you're promised certain rewards. Uh, and there's a way um, to to guarantee things, you know. In, in you know, we all struggle with this uh, uncertainty in life, and having these kinds of rules and rituals uh, is a comfort. Absolutely. Um, I don't know if you know Alain de Botton. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he he has this great lecture about uh, religion. Um, Religion for Atheists, it's called, something Mm -hmm. like that. Um, Very, very nice lecture. And one of the things he mentions there is that basically one of the things that religions get right is rituals and repetition. And, you know, he says we're, we're simple beings. We need to be reminded of the lesson, right? And today in the university, we go and we learn a subject once in the lecture, and then we're expected to to know that thing. And he says it isn't so, right? In religions, they they were smart to this. They knew this. So every week, you would have the same ritual. You, you would have, uh, you know, you would repeat uh, uh, reading the same text over and over again throughout your life. And, and that served as a way to really instill these ideas and mm-hmm. in a positive sense it, that can help you um, program good things into mm-hmm. into 
you know, your psyche in a sense. Yeah, and you could see rituals in, I mean, you can see rituals in young children, you know. Um, like what? Well, you know, young children often want to have things done in a certain fixed order every day before going to bed, for example. Now I want my, uh, you know, glass of milk and now read me the same story. And now let's do this. And, and it's always in the same order and it has to be very um, religiously observed. <laughs> yes. right? um, and, uh, and, and, and other disorders also are associated with, with uh, certain rituals, even uh, the autistic spectrum. Right. Again, right. and I think it comes from this feeling of of needing control. And if you don't have a sense of control and and things seem either chaotic or or that you don't understand them, then you invent you sort of you you um you put some order on things. You create order in this chaotic world, uh, and that that is, I think, something that comforts you or reduces your anxiety and your feeling that you're lost. Do you find that? Many people who have OCD have also experienced in their life a lack of control in in the sense of perhaps, you know, they grew up with over-controlling parents or, or they weren't able to exercise control in their own life. I don't. And I don't think there is a, a very strong um, literature that shows that. In general, I think um, research doesn't show that uh, specific psychopathologies are associated with specific past experiences. Right. Uh, How would you measure it too? You know, yeah, so difficult. Exactly. And and I think also if, if you look if with hindsight, of course, people tend to remember the things that they associate with the development of their problems. Right. But that's very constructive very in constructive. the memory. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I'm, I'm not hopeful that we'll be able to find a specific path that leave that leads people to OCD from their childhood to, to their right. OCD. Not not also um, you know a path that necessarily will create OCD, but we might find um, you know a higher likelihood, of, uh, yeah, higher likelihood patterns here and there, uh, general theme. Uh, but mm, yeah, no, not yet, not, not yet, no. not yet. Okay, we'll we'll work <laughs> on that hypothesis. Okay, I wanted I wanted to ask just in general, uh, what advice would you give someone who is looking for a career in clinical psychology? Wow, that was a big, um, a big, a big uh, swerve. Yeah, um, I think it's a difficult um, path to take. I mean, you know that school takes a long time, and and then you have internship for four years, and then you have so it's a. Uh, um, so I think uh, it's advisable to develop some special skills um, and to be, I think, a specialist in some area which could be certain disorders or certain kinds of therapies. Um, clearly now, for example, if you are a child therapist and you're a man, uh, you might have a relatively easy time. Uh, because Why? there the lack of lack of men who are child therapists Interesting. um so it i think um yeah i'm not sure i think it it is i, I do know also many people who've just taken the standard common path of becoming psychodynamic therapists and are doing really really well so i think if you're good um you probably will succeed i i can certainly understand why it's interesting for people to take that that Right. It's not, not an easy course, for sure. But you, you would suggest for certain people to to consider a specialization. Yeah, if, if you can find your own special voice or special, you know, see what works for you, where you're good. You know, I, I certainly, you know, through the years, I, it became clear to me what I do well and I don't, what I don't do very well. And then clearly I work better with people with anxiety and OCD than I work with people with depression. Um so, you know... Um, why, why is that? What did you find, <laughs> if, if I may ask? Yeah, no, sure. Um, I don't know. There's something about me that doesn't have the patience, uh, maybe, um, to work with people with depression, or even though I know that it's a difficult state to be in, I, I maybe have this feeling that, oh, get out of it. No, I'm not a good therapist for people who's, who are depressed. But that's important to know. It's yeah. important to know yourself and your right. reaction to certain individuals. Right, right. So I think that's something you find out through throughout uh, through the course of, of you know, becoming a therapist. Um, and you also find out what you do well. Um, so yeah, another advice maybe we just to follow that 
perception, or not, it's not exactly perception, it's that knowledge that you develop about yourself and what you do better and what you don't do well. Right, because, you know, just in, in general, there are certain people that you're going to connect to more and per- certain people that you're going to, um, to connect to less. And I think that goes for a therapist as well, mm-hmm, right? Sure. There, there are certain, um, certain disorders, certain kind of flavors of, uh, of pathologies that might be harder for someone to relate to and to really be able to show up for. Mm-hmm. It, and, you know, it could be that some of it is, is your own personality. You know, I probably am more obsessed with compulsive than I am a <laughs> depressive person. Um, but yeah, where you find yourself comfortable, where you find that you interact well, uh, well effective, basically. Right. But, you know, in, in all of that, there is a real honesty about, you know, being honest with yourself about who you are and what you're good at and what you're not good at. Mm-hmm. And and also not um, like letting go of a need to be good at everything or mm-hmm. to get along with everyone. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so for my final question, you know, the podcast is called The Bigger Picture. Uh-huh. And one of the things that I like to ask at the end is, you know, the bigger picture for me means looking at things from a zoomed out perspective. You know, it's looking at... Um, the deeper meaning of things. And in a sense, you know, I, I would want to know what would you say is your bigger picture of your work and your life? Wow. <laughs> I, guess I, I should have heard some previous podcasts <laughs> to the end. <laughs> um, sure. So you asked about my work first, right? So... I tend to do many things, um, so I can, maybe it connects to my life as well in general. So I, I have many hobbies. I, I'm the person who tends to not be too focused on one thing, not in my research and not in my uh, general. Um, I think I tend to follow my intuition about what I like to do and what I do well. And I'm not sure it's a good advice for everyone. You know, I think it just really depends on who, who you are. Uh, for me, I like, you know, I like, I spend time painting. I spend time uh, reading. Spend time, of course, with my family, with my kids. I wouldn't be able to only do psychotherapy. I wouldn't be able to only do research. I think it's really not an idea. I think it's who I am. Right. And in terms of, you know, the bigger picture of what kind of impact you would want to have, what kind of impact you would want your work to have, for instance. Okay. So that really depends on which field. But if we are still in the in, in the area of uh, OCD, yeah, I would want um, that people would have a better understanding of OCD and also maybe developed some new ways of helping people with OCD. That's actually where we are now with our theory and our model of OCDs. Uh, So assuming that we are right about people with OCD having difficulty accessing their internal states, how do we help them to improve their access to their internal states? Um, You mentioned mindfulness. We think that's one of the the paths that, that might help. Uh, help people to connect with their internal states. We have other methods. We're very in, in very preliminary stage of, ex- of of examining them, but I would like to my work to have some impact on not only understanding OCD but also uh, in terms of helping people with OCD. I would like to have personal impact on my students. I would like them to develop uh, to become good researchers, good therapists. Um, yeah. What else? Beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> and is there anything about, um, you know, your model, the seeking proxies for internal states, that you would like to share that I, like any question that I haven't asked about it? Um, so, you know, I think it has some unique, um, unique qualities, the model that... Um, for example, the fact that it's relatively content-free, that we don't only focus on things that are obvious, like um, fear of contamination, of hurting other people. We try to stay away from the content and see whether we can find 
um, some basic tenets uh, to the model that uh, are fairly free of, of content. Uh, if we find basic um, deficits or basic things that may have gone wrong, that uh, that from that we can deduce the symptoms that we see. To me, that's a very attractive kind of, of uh, intellectual project. And there's um, a first principles kind of approach right, to it. Right, right. That um, mm-hmm. think if there's anything else to say about the model that we haven't talked about. No, I you know I think that the one one concern I have is that so far, almost all the research on the model we haven't talked about the actual studies, but all the studies that we we did to support the model were done here in our lab. Uh, same people did all mm. this work. And I would really like to see it expanding. Uh, so we just sent out for a publication. Hopefully it will come out soon, uh, a review of the model. And, and I really hope that other people elsewhere will pick it up and develop it further. Right. That's one of the things in psychology that's so important to to really show that you know, it can be replicated mm-hmm. in different uh, different countries different with different researchers and right. um, you know different participants. Amazing, amazing. Thank you, Ruvi, for this fascinating conversation. (laughs) My pleasure. For everyone out there listening, thank you for tuning in to The Bigger Picture. I hope you found this conversation interesting. You can find us on all podcasting platforms, wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to hit subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. My name is Roni Firon. This is The Bigger Picture. Thank you for listening. Until next time.